Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. This is Josh Adams' voice. <laughs> Eric Ostrich. Hello. And today we're joined by the Reverend of Hype, Corey O'Daniel. Hi, everybody. <laughs> hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Welcome, Corey. Uh, Thank so you. I'd love to hear a little bit about just some of your background, kind of your experience with Elixir, where you work, anything like that you can tell us. Yeah, so um, background, uh, I, I originally worked in uh, healthcare information systems uh, for a while, um, moved to, to California on a, a tangent uh, 15 or so years ago, and got really into uh, Ruby on Rails development. Um, did that for quite a while, founded a couple of companies, um, and then maybe three or four years ago, I started doing um, some Elixir development. Um, I joined a company as an ops engineer, um, helping them do some Kubernetes migrations. Um, and then there was two we needed internally that we needed to be highly available pretty much up constantly. Um, and that was our uh, internal uh, CI CD system, uh, which sounds crazy, but follow me here. Uh, and uh, uh, an ingress for an ETL system. And so uh, we developed both of those in Elixir. Um, and yeah, so um, that's been doing Elixir since then. Um, also been working on some um, Kubernetes stuff with Elixir, um, specifically a, a framework called Bonnie and, the, and a Kubernetes client for Elixir called Kates, K8S, um, as well as a library for GKE to do, um, uh, to do high availability of GKE's equivalent of spot instances. The name is escaping preemptive, preemptive nodes. So you can do high availability of preemptive nodes on uh, a GKE cluster. Very cool. So you mentioned a lot of Kubernetes things in there. And uh, one of the things I know uh, we, want, we invited you to come on and talk about some of the interesting things you're doing with Elixir and Kubernetes, because I think that's a really cool combination. And you spoke recently at the big Elixir, uh, which is just December of 2019. Uh, so I'd love, and yeah, so we'll have a link to your presentation in the show notes. Check that out if you haven't seen that. So maybe you can just kind of give us an introduction to what it was you were talking about. Yeah, so I was talking about something called the operator pattern, um, which is the idea is uh, encapsulating um, expertise in systems uh, that a human operator knows how to do, um, including uh, like second day operations. Um, so these could be things like deploying common software packages like Prometheus um, or doing things like taking uh, database backups and restores. Um, I, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I've been working on a library called Bonnie, which allows you to write operators in, in Elixir. Um, and the, the operator pattern itself is, is fairly simple. Um, uh, I'm not sure if that's the right word, word, word to use there, but there's not, there's not a lot to it. Uh, there's effectively a, a REST API that backs most of Kubernetes. Um, and uh, the operator pattern is pulling that REST API, looking for new objects to be created and acting on those objects. So um, the, the, the full scope of an operator is creating uh, a schema that represents uh, a type of um, data you're going to put into Kubernetes. Maybe it's actually called a backup and a restore um, or a Prometheus um, and then acting on those things when you see them created in the Kubernetes API. So somebody says, I need a Prometheus and then it executes some code to generate a Prometheus. Um, yeah. So I've never actually into, you know, gone so far as to create my own operators, at least. Uh, so I, I do run Kubernetes uh, in our system. Uh, we're on AWS, the EKS one, the managed 
uh, Kubernetes there. And so I'm curious, because when you're talking about, you know, using Elixir for this, you're not talking about deploying your application, right? Like the application that your end users are using and interacting with. You're talking about deploying Elixir in a different, more integrated to Kubernetes way. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So there's, there's a, a series of, there's something in Kubernetes called the controller manager. And so if you've, if you've worked with Kubernetes, you may see stateful sets, deployments, replica sets, et cetera. Um, all of these, there's, there's controllers for each one of those. So as you say, I want a deployment. Um, it will um, create a deployment in uh, etcd um, through the Kubernetes REST API. And then the deployment controller is going to act on that when it sees one show up. So what the deployment controller actually does is it creates a replica set in in etcd. You still don't have any running containers. Um, then there is a, uh, and it kind of just uh, trickles down until it gets to the point that the scheduler actually communicates with Kubelet to place place a pod. And so um, when you're working with Bonnie or, or writing operators, what you're doing is you're adding other controllers that act on those um, those kinds in Kubernetes, like deployment, stable set, et cetera, except for you can define your own. So um, the actual code that you write, uh, when, when I talk about with Bonnie that's in Elixir, is writing Elixir to uh, uh, make the logic of those controllers. Yeah, so essentially you create a custom resource definition and then you register a controller as managing that, right? Correct, yeah. So, um, but, but the registration part there is, is the weird word. So uh, you don't necessarily register it, like you just deploy, so when you, when you deploy an operator, you're just deploying another deployment or staple set, depending on if you need state. Um, and then you're polling against the uh, the REST API. Um, there's two uh, things you're looking for there. One is the watch API, um, and that lets you uh, see objects in real time. Uh, so it's kind of an optimization. But the other thing is also constantly reconciling. So you're looking for what's in the system um, or what's currently um, in Kubernetes. Um, and, and by that, I mean like your operator might go down, somebody might delete a resource, and then your operator comes back up and it has to reconcile that situation of that thing's not there anymore. You missed that real time event. Um, and so, um, yeah, so, so registering is essentially following those two APIs. Uh, and the interesting thing there is multiple operators can act on, um, on the same uh, custom resource type or, or even, you know, uh, resource types that come with Kubernetes. So you can, you can actually deploy an operator that simply watches for deployments and maybe sends a Slack notification when that happens. It doesn't have to actually act on Kubernetes itself. So um, the the library I mentioned earlier that I'm working on for um, preemptive nodes, it doesn't actually act on Kubernetes. So it's in Kubernetes. It's watching nodes appear in Kubernetes, and then it's doing stuff against the GKE API to try to get cheaper nodes. So in your presentation, uh, you were giving some examples, I think, uh, up front to kind of give an give people an idea of what an operator can do. And you were talking about kubedb. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Kubedb is pretty cool. So kubedb is, uh, is is something else, it, but is it an operator? Um, I think it's I think it's a little beyond an operator because they also include a CLI for it, so you can okay. manage your resources. But you can you can deploy it and you can have uh, CRDs in there and have it manage your your databases, uh, manage your databases, deploy uh, a set of uh, databases to Kubernetes. Uh, I, off the top of my head, I think actually in my talk I said Kafka was one of them, but Kafka is absolutely not. There's a separate <laughs> operator for Kafka. Uh, okay. There's like Postgres, MySQL, Redis, um, I think etcd. They can deploy a lot of different databases um, for you. 
Um, and that's, that's nice. Um, I'm, I'm always hesitant about running my own stateful sets in Kubernetes. Like if there's a, if there's a managed service for handling my data, like I like that, <laughs> I don't want to be the guy that, that loses the database. Um, but it, it's, it's a pretty cool tool. Um, I use it. <clears throat> I use it a lot of times for, um, staging databases. So stuff that I'm mm-hmm. fine losing the data. Um, so if I have a big RDS database, um, for production and I want to be able to do something like review apps in Heroku. Um, in Kubernetes, I'll use kubedb to provision all of my Postgres databases, restore snapshots um, to them so that I have staging or production-like data in a, in a review app. Cool. And one of the things I really liked as an, uh, a way of explaining the role of an operator uh, was that the idea that you can have this like kubedb, this, this thing that, and so like the definition of an operator as I was kind of looking it up is it's like a, it aims to capture the, the abilities of a human operator who is managing a service. So they have knowledge about how to do things, how to deep knowledge about how to work with this thing. And so like that involves, like you'd mentioned, restoring or taking snapshots and doing those kinds of things and just having a, a very kind of friendly uh, API for working with that. And so I think that's really cool. So like then I start to think, like you'd mentioned also, I could have services that are, just monitoring what's going on in Kubernetes and maybe doing Slack messages. And so like I can, okay, maybe there's other things that would be interesting for the engineering team to be able to have insight into or to trigger events or anything like that as, as things are happening. So I would, I would love to hear any, any kind of things that you've experimented and played with in, in using this, in using Bonnie yourself, like what kind of stuff have you done with this? Yeah, I've built some pretty weird things. Um, <laughs> uh, it seems like it's always weird things with me. Um, so one project that I released uh, on, the, on the Bonnie SDK GitHub organization is uh, something called eviction controller. And what the eviction controller allows you to do is have a pod evict itself from Kubernetes if it's running in a scenario it's not happy with. And so what, what I mean by that is there's something in Kubernetes called affinity and anti-affinity. Um, and that affinity might be something like, I'm a pod and I want to run, I, or I require to run on a node that has a GPU. I'm doing some sort of ML modeling, I need a GPU. Um, there's also preference. So you can say I prefer to do something. And so you might prefer to not run on a node if you're maybe Postgres, your replica might prefer not to run on the same node as the master, such that if the mass, if that node goes down, you don't lose your master and your replica at the same time. Um, <clears throat> so in, in the preference case, occasionally you'll end up on nodes that you don't want to be on. Um, and if you get scheduled there, you run until that pod exits either normally or, or crashes for some reason. Uh, what the eviction controller lets you do is say, you know, I ended up on a pod or on a node I don't want to be on. Um, I don't want to thrash the Kubernetes API and just restart this pod because I'm not happy where it's at. Let it run for 10 minutes just so I can get some use out of it and then shut it down and hopefully reschedule it to where I wanted to be. So that case might be you have a workload that prefers to run on preemptive or spot instances and it gets scheduled to a regular VM instance that's more expensive. And so that's fine. You want to handle HTTP requests. You, hand that, you let that pod run for three minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, and then you have it evict itself. Um, and hopefully get rescheduled on a preemptive or a spot instance if they're available. So it allows you to, uh, in that case, run on cheaper nodes if they're available, but if they're not, run on uh, regular, uh, regular priced VMs. Um, some other things I've built with it um, that I'm, actually I haven't released this yet, I'm hoping to release it soon. Um, I developed a, something very similar to Heroku Review Apps for a company in the past. 
um, that I worked at and I'm hoping to open source uh, a derivative of that work <laughs> um, using, uh, using Bonnie. So you'll be able to um, pretty much add a GitHub repo as a, as a CRD uh, and it will watch for pull requests on that GitHub repo and then deploy your, you know, whether it's a Kubernetes deployment or stateful set into a namespace um, running for just that pull request. So you can go and inspect that, um, that code uh, live on the same type of Kubernetes cluster you might be running fraud on. I'd like to subscribe to your newsletter. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011, and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done. But we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or, or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting edge cases with it. Um, but I think the you know it's 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 nice to be able to like see it de deploy and be able to go access that app. The the thing that I've been struggling with it is is like ah if you know if you use uh, Kube Cuddle or Kube Control or Kube Cartel or whatever you call it, it's it's great. You can see the thing running. You can access that endpoint. Um, I have zero aesthetic skill whatsoever, so I'd love to be able to deploy a either a Phoenix Live View or something so you can see all of your review apps and kind of have the same control over them that you have in Heroku. Uh, and so I'm kind of hamstringing myself on like getting something up that that looks kind of nice. So it's it's a little easier for for people that aren't familiar with Kubernetes to to work with. Um, so one of the things that I really liked from your your talk, um, the Kubernetes that we've been doing up until, uh, yeah, I guess still kind of is is like a lot on primitives. So we have like Helm charts that that deal with like deployments and stateful sets and whatnot. But like in your in your talk, you show building a was it C C R D T uh, of, of just like, here's an app and like, it's way simplified. So I just think that's really cool and something I didn't even know was possible. Yeah. So that, so, so yeah, doing a custom resource definition for your actual application, it's just, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a, it's a deeply integrated way with Kubernetes to deploy your app. You have a lot of different tools out there. There's, you know, there's JSON, it customize helm. Um, the thing I like about, building a CRD for it is, again, it's your operator knowledge of how the thing should work, right? So um, I personally don't believe that if you have application developers on your team that are building features that make your company money, that those developers should have to be dealing with the burden of Kubernetes. Like there's a lot to Kubernetes. Um, I don't think it's great for everybody. I mean, if you don't have an ops team, like why, 
why are you spending engineering time that could be building features on Kubernetes? Like there's lots of great options out there to put your application on. Um, if you are using Kubernetes, like why not have the people that know how to operate Kubernetes encapsulate your application so that your application engineers only have to worry about a few variables to, to, to run their application. They don't have to know what a stateful set is or what a deployment is or how to mount a volume um, or what a config map is for versus a secret. Like that's, it's a lot of, information to or there's a lot to learn if you're just trying to get a feature out so yeah so uh that's that's the way i prefer to uh to deploy apps uh, there, there are caveats to it obviously um you have to update that crd um when there's major structural changes to how you're deploying that app um but um yeah and, it, and it's it's another abstraction too right so if if you do have engineers that are interested in like how it works it's like they're seeing the crd so they're getting kind of a, a filtered view of how to do things in kubernetes versus exposing them to all the knowledge that they could gain from looking at a, a deployment yaml file <laughs> yeah i think just in general i agree that there ought to be an abstraction there because it's it's way open-ended right now yeah, I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think like, I think, I think, you know, and it's, I feel like it's, it's a highly debated topic, even like some of the people that are heavily invested in Kubernetes, like push people away from Kubernetes. And I think that's, that's good because if you have people use it that don't have the time to invest in operating it um, well, uh, you get, you know, bad blog posts, bad, you know, bad opinions on it. Um, I think that, like people in ops want Kubernetes or want something like that, 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 that takes away a lot of the burden of what they have to do day in, day out, writing bash scripts, et cetera. But I think application developers, like they want a Heroku. Like you look at the Zeitz, the Gigalixers, the Herokus of the world. Like I want something easy to just get my application up and run. And so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting mix when you see application developers and, and, and ops people at the same company. It's like, it's, you know, you, you kind of, or, or I, I feel like Kubernetes can be a leaky abstraction on the application developer side, like letting them see all the guts to what's running their application. No, that's, I'm glad to hear you uh, kind of talk about Kubernetes from that very pragmatic standpoint. Because uh, I totally agree with you, right? Like I went into Kubernetes wanting to be more ops focused, wanting to get involved with that, wanting to understand it. And then so I, I kind of feel bad for those people who are like, yeah, I think we should do it. And they, they don't actually have a, a passion for going in that direction because it is, there's a lot to overcome. And so like, like recently on Twitter, I'll include this in the show notes. There's a, this is uh, yesterday as from when this was recorded, uh, Fred Heber, who is uh, very, we've had him on the podcast a couple times. Uh, he does a lot in the Erlang community. So he says, 15 years ago, if you wanted a, if you wanted a dynamic website with, PHP, you installed a LAMP stack, wrote a few toy pages, uploaded the files to a $5 host, fiddled for 30 minutes with, you know, HT access, and you were done. I don't recall seeing anything close to this easy since then. And there's this conversation that just goes on. But it, it's kind of that whole idea, like it has become complex. And that, there, that complexity brings protections and affordances and abilities that we didn't have that weren't possible. Uh, but you know, it's at the, at this sake of simplicity. So I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just wanted to say, I, I appreciate your perspective. You know, even though you're like totally gung ho on Kubernetes, you're like, it's not for everybody and that's okay. Yeah. I mean, 
It's, it's, it's definitely not. And I've been in, I mean, you know, I, whenever I develop applications now, like I deploy on Kubernetes locally just cause I'm, I'm so used to it. Like it's a great tool chain for me. I know how all the tools work. I know how to set up CI CD locally. Like, um, and it's just, you know, I don't have to go, how do I get, how do I, how do I deploy to a VM again on AWS? Like, how, Oh, I gotta get, I gotta SSH into it. I gotta copy these files here. I got to restart the thing. Like it's, for me, it's like, I, I've, I've been working with it for such a long time. It's just, it's, it's a really simple toolkit and it's not a simple, simple is a terrible word to use because it's absolutely not simple, but it's something I'm very familiar with um, that, that makes it easy for me, for me to deploy. It's definitely not, not as simple as it used to be, uh, but it's, I think it's all in that chase for that, that mythical nine nines in the sky. Right. Uh. <laughs> right. Uh, so one of the things I'd love to kind of touch on is just your perspective on, you know, you have this uh, experience with Elixir and a lot of experience with Kubernetes. Kind of what is your experience with the two meshing, like even just for deploying Kubernetes, uh, like Elixir applications? Like how well does that work or not? It, it works well. There's, there's definitely some interesting, some interesting stuff. And I actually, it's funny, I, I tweeted a few nights ago. Um, I've been rereading a lot of Elixir and Erlang books um, and prep for my talk at Codebeam um, and just, trying to find all the, th I feel like every time you go through like Erlang docs, there's like, there's something else in there that these people invented 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And you're like, Oh, they, they did that already. That's cool. Um, and it's just, every time I open this docs, there's like something that I missed the first time. There's, there's always something new. And there was, there, there was ODB support in, in Erlang. Like I didn't know that. That's crazy. Um, I don't know that I'd use it, but it's interesting to see. Uh, <laughs> but um, so I've seen, I, in my last foray through, um, uh, a couple of uh, the Earth's Guide, uh, Erlang and Anger, um, the scaling OTP book. I came up with a ton of things that you could do in Kubernetes that would be interesting to, to integrate with Erlang and Elixir apps to make stuff a little easier. Um, things like being able to, to ship out your, your crash dumps uh, so that when an Erlang app goes down, like you have a place that they're all centrally located at and kind of do that automatically for you. Um, uh, integrating with... Um, the SASL alert manager for triggering alerts through Prometheus and alert manager. Um, uh, some of the interesting things that I've seen is, you know, uh, I feel like if you give a, an Elixir or an Erlang app a bit more uh, CPU, it'll generally perform better, right? Um, you, you can have some interesting things happen. Let's say you have like a 64 CPU uh, instance. Um, <clears throat> something that's really interesting is if you set, uh, using Kubernetes, if you set, um, the resource requests and let's say you set it to, you know, I want, uh, I want, you know, uh, 500 M CPU up to two full CPUs. <clears throat> and then you go in and you look at the schedulers on that Elixir app. They'll have 64. Yeah. It, it, the, the schedulers reflect, uh, the actual count of the CPUs on the machine, not the, not what you've limited it through, uh, configuring in your deployment or pod, which is pretty interesting. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, so then you have, and, and one of the things I'm intending to do in my, for my CoBeam talk is, um, is, is measure the impact of that. Like what happens when you have way more schedulers than actual CPUs to do the work? Um, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, generally I will set the schedulers flags on my, uh, on my Erlang and Elixir apps just to make sure that they're uh, in sync with what I'm requesting from Kubernetes. Um, uh, you can also see that the way that the, the, the tight loop in, in Erlang works with the scheduler uh, can be kind of a unfriendly neighbor to other apps uh, running in Kubernetes. So, you know, um, uh, 
tuning your the, the busy weight, um, I think that's what the parameter is called, um, can can help a bit there with other apps that are also running um, on uh, Kubernetes. But yeah, there's 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 definitely some quirks like being able to do uh, internode communication is nice. Uh, being able to connect them, um, but you know, making sure that you've set up the the correct services so that you can connect EPMD. One of the really nice things about Kubernetes is having that it has a built-in um, sort of service discovery, uh, where given a service type in Kubernetes, uh, you have um, a name that will resolve inside that cluster locally to to the pod. So it's really easy to be able to find other Elixir nodes for an application uh, based on a service name. Um, and that's actually the feature that um, libcluster uses to connect uh, over kubedns, isn't it? Is that the yeah. same? Yeah. Yeah, I think libcluster, uh, yeah, libcluster, um, this is libcluster, right? I always confuse libcluster and swarm, but I'm, yeah, I think it's libcluster. So I know that you have experience with other languages, not just Elixir, and Go is one of those languages. And I understand that a lot of Kubernetes is built in Go. And so I was just curious as to some of the reasons or rationale that you had of like in creating Bonnie as this operator, why did you choose Elixir over Go? Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons. Uh, there, so honestly, if uh, if you want to get, if you're interested in Elixir and, and you're interested in Kubernetes, I would recommend checking out Bonnie. Uh, if you're interested in just getting operators out today um, and you've got a lot of experience with Go, there's there's plenty of operator frameworks out there. There's um, there's one called Kudo, which is actually pretty interesting. I think it's the Kubernetes. Um, what is it? I can't remember the universal. I don't know something operator, but uh, it, it allows you to declarative, declarative operator. It lets you de design operators using just YAML, which like sounds like the most exciting thing in the world to me because I absolutely love YAML, uh, <laughs> despite all the hate for it. Um, and then there's there's uh, CoreOS has one called the Operator SDK, um, and then there's another one. Uh, there's one more. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. There's 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 one other one other framework, but um, oh, Kube Builder. Um, so there's a lot of options for for building operators. So why did I build it in Elixir? Uh, honestly, I, I've got experience with Go. Most of my Go experience has been writing command line tools, um, and so um, I haven't written a ton of servers with it. Um, I, actually, I've only written a couple of of, of toy-ish servers with it. Um, and so whenever I sit down to write an operator with Go, I always kind of just locked up. I'm like, I don't really know. I don't really know what to do here. Um, and so sitting around, I, I think I made this joke in, the, uh, in my, in my um, big Elixir talk. I was like, you know, I could do this. I could write this operator in like two hours if I was writing an Elixir. And it's going to take me forever to do this in Go. So why don't I just spend a few months writing a laser framework so it's easier for me like it is great um and so i mean that was that was really it it was it was it was a mix of it was just I had a lot more experience in Elixir, and so it, was, it felt easier for me to do things. Um, but then as I started learning about the operator pattern itself, and that was one of my other goals is like I wanted to know how this thing worked, not just be able to use it. Um, so I figured building your own framework is like the best way what best way to learn uh and what i what i learned is my initial release is that i completely under, misunderstood the entire pattern uh so i missed the entire reconciliation loop which somebody pointed out they're like how do you reconcile stuff if your operator's down and i was like i don't know 
<laughs> uh, so I had to go back in and do it. I did a refactoring to add that support in there. But uh, yeah, so it was really, it was, it was a mix of, you know, Go isn't something that I was an expert in. And so whenever I sat down to write an operator, which was pretty frequent, um, I, I, it just, there was, uh, it just took me longer. Um, and I was really interested in learning how, how the pattern worked. Um, but, but in working on it, it's like, it feels, it feels like a really good fit for Elixir. There's this real time stream of events you need to subscribe to. Um, you need to be able to act on the system constantly um, to make sure that it's reconciled. Uh, it just, it, the, 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 the words that you hear when you're reading through the operator pattern, just it, they coincide with you know, the words that we use when we're describing Elixir applications. Very nice. Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out my JavaScript story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. So there's the other library you mentioned, which was K8S. It's your library. So that's also the abbreviation people use just for Kubernetes. Uh, so I have a link to your uh, K8S in the show notes. But so just to kind of let people know what this is, it is a, a Kubernetes API client for Elixir. So yeah. I, I understand that I could use this even though maybe I'm not creating an Elixir operator. I just have an Elixir. Maybe it's, you know, it's, I'm building my own custom dashboard or something. And I just want to get, I want to talk to Kubernetes and get data out of it or interact with it in some way. Correct. Yeah. So it interacts with the the REST API, um, uh, the REST API in Kubernetes. And so there's there's another library out there, and I, I used it for a while. I, uh, I, I, it's called Kazan. Kazan. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Uh, K-A-Z-A-N. Um, I used that one for a while, and it got to the point where I was building operators, but it required um, it required. I can't remember what it required. I think it required like the, the swagger file from the uh, Kubernetes cluster you're going to be deploying against. And so you needed this thing compiled to know what cluster it was going against. And so that was just kind of hard. Like if you're building an operator that can run on any cluster, um, that wasn't, that wasn't um, you know, it, it, it was hard to work around. So it's like you'd have to compile the operator for each cluster that you wanted to target at if the swagger file was different. And so my goal was to write a, uh, a library that would introspect the Kubernetes API at startup uh, and figure out what, uh, what it supports and what it doesn't. So the big trade-off there is if you look at, if you look at Kazan, it auto-generates, it does a lot of um, code generation. And so you have structs for you know, every kind in Kubernetes for all the different versions. And in Kate, you don't. You just have maps, like you just have maps coming back for everything. Um, because uh, I was trying to, I was purposely trying to avoid doing code generation with it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess you got to do a lot of pattern matching uh, <laughs> for for all the the different versions and kinds. But um, it it feels, I mean, to me, it feels like a, a an easier solution for working with operators, and that's what I built Bonnie on top of. Um, I'd awesome. used Kazan in the past, but uh, I'll look at this the next time I do stuff just for, uh, yeah, just to play with different stuff. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a factor now that it's, I think the branch has been open for a while, the 0.5 release of it, um, which I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I think I, I probably won't come out until after Codebeam because uh, I feel like I got a lot of prep work to do for Codebeam. Uh, but some of the things that, that, and that branch is already, I mean, you can use it today. Uh, it's just not, you know, uh, ready to go. I think there's a few more things in my milestone uh, to finish there. But um, a couple of things that it does is um, it no longer introspects the API at startup. Uh, that, what, what I was seeing with it in large clusters um, is you would see the operators or whatever app was using Kate's take a while to start up um, just because the, you know, the Kubernetes API might be being hammered if you have thousand nodes uh, with, you know, you know, 4,000 pods running. So it would take a while to be able to like hit the API to get the information you need. So what it does now is um, it doesn't introspect anything at startup. The first time you make a request, it introspects and caches the functionality for um, that kind. So you slowly build up um, uh, what it can do. Um, so if you make a request like create a deployment, what it'll do is it'll go, okay, like what, what can this Kubernetes cluster do with a deployment? And it builds up all the routes and paths uh, to be able to interact with that REST interface. And then it also decouples the idea of authentication uh, from a Kubernetes cluster. Um, so right now when you use the Cakes library, you have to register, uh, you essentially give an alias to a cluster name, so you might call it dev or prod or whatever, and in doing so, you tie that uh, URL for that cluster's management API to a set of credentials. Uh, and so I'm separating that um, so that you can use the same set of credentials for multiple APIs um, or um, one API with multiple sets of credentials. Um, so it'll be, it'll be a little more interesting after this 0.5 release, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool little library, if I do say so myself. Well, you mentioned uh, Codebeam there. I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of promote that and let people know where you're going to be appearing. So is that the San Francisco one, or where is this going to be? Yeah, it's uh, Codebeam SF. Uh, I'll be... Uh, the, the talk's going to be on uh, Kubernetes and the Beam better together with a question mark. Um, <laughs> Because I mean, my, my argument, you know, is it's going to be very similar to what I was saying earlier. Is I think that I, I think that they fit together very well. Uh, it's the way I prefer to deploy. But um, I don't I don't necessarily think it's for every single app and for every single team. Um, and so talking about that a bit, um, and then talking about some of the quirks of deploying Elixir and Erlang apps on Kubernetes, and some of the things that I think could be developed to make it um, uh, a bit of a tighter integration. Cool. So if we have a link to that in the show notes. It's the 5th and 6th of March in 2020. So that sounds like a, a good one uh, to, especially if you're in the neighborhood, you definitely want to go. Yeah, the, the, it, I haven't been to a Codebeam before. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, if you look through the talks that are already listed, there's, there's a lot of awesome speakers and, and a lot of talks that sound pretty interesting. So I'm, I'm excited just to attend. <laughs> well, really appreciate you taking time to be with us, kind of coming up on the end of our time. Um, is there anything else you want to mention before we go to picks? Um, well, uh, yeah. So I actually, um, I, 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 can, can I, can I make a, a, a call for applications? <laughs> um, yeah. I, I recently joined uh, the real real as a principal software architect and uh, we are hiring Elixir developers. So if you are, if you are looking for a change and are interested in doing Elixir development for um, uh, in the consignment and e-commerce space, um, check out our careers page. Uh, and, if you're interested in doing, and, and I, I've, I've done this in the past and, and, and got overwhelmed, but I'm just gonna go for it anyway. If you're interested in doing 
Elixir and Kubernetes development and you're interested in working on the Cates library or Bonnie library, um, reach out to me on Twitter. I, I keep my, my DMs open. Um, I would love to pair up with a couple of people and teach them a bit about Kubernetes uh, and how it works internally just so I can kind of recruit some more people to, to help me work on, on Kates and Bonnie. So I'd, I'd love to invest time in, in sharing what I know about Kubernetes to possibly get some helping hands. Very cool. All right. Well, let's go to picks. Josh, do you have one? I do. Uh, my pick is radiohead.com. It was updated and they have not historically had a lot of informational stuff on their website, but they have a ton of it now. They have what they call the library. And in that library, you will find the link that I posted, which is the King of Limbs from the Basement, which is just an hour of Radiohead recording. And it's amazing. Cool. All right, Eric. Uh, so I am going to pick. Uh, so I recently upgraded my computer um, and I just got an AMD Threadripper 3970X, uh, which has uh, 32 cores. Oh, man. Uh, and, and let me tell you what, uh, Elixir <laughs> and Erlang, it, it loves that CPU. So um, <clears throat> I've yet to actually, <clears throat> excuse me, I've yet to actually saturate it, which is an uh, interesting problem to have. So yeah, definitely uh, get your hands on one of those if you can. <laughs> oh, cool. All right. Uh, so mine is, uh, it's a movie called The Game Changers. It's on Netflix. Uh, you can also see the full movie on YouTube. I've got a link to it in the show notes. It is about elite athletes and plant-based diets. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is an executive producer and also appears in the movie. So it's really all about, it's kind of focused on endurance sports, bodybuilding, and strength training. So it's kind of the things that I had always been told oh, you have to have high animal protein, like whey protein. You have, to, you have to eat like this certain other way in order to achieve that. And they're showing, no, you actually have better results if you do it this other way. And so I thought it was a really cool, kind of a little bit of a mind-blowing uh, you know, video about uh, diet and how we can possibly live healthier. So that's it for me. Corey, how about you? Um, yeah, I have two. Um, one is a, a uh, open source project called Inlets, which is similar to uh, Ingrok. Uh, so it lets you run a reverse proxy in tunnels so that people, you can share links to applications you're working on locally uh, and share it with people remotely. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool. And then my other one was ConfTest, which uh, lets you write tests against structured configuration data like YAML, JSON, INI files, um, uh, Terraform. Um, so you can do things like if, you're, if you are deploying to Kubernetes, you can write something in your CI pipeline that wouldn't, or CI CD pipeline that wouldn't allow a deployment to happen if it was, if that deployment was running as root, let's say, or um, if it was uh, setting a, a particularly high number of CPUs. And you can use it for things in Terraform like, hey, when we apply Terraform, if we're going to recreate the database in place, like, don't do that. <laughs> There's data in there. Very cool. All right. I haven't seen either of those, but Josh was uh, attesting to them and, and talking about how awesome they were ahead of the show. So something I have to look, look forward to looking into. Well, Corey, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for coming on. If people would like to connect with you or get in touch with you, what is the best way they should do that? My LinkedIn. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Twitter, I, you know, uh, I guess, I guess Twitter or um, eh, Twitter is probably the easiest. Um, yeah, I, I check my messages uh, pretty often. Um, so that's a, that's a good place to, to at me. Cool. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. All right. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Yay. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.